Hello and welcome to the Shock Your Potential podcast. I am your host, Michael Sherlock. Each one of us holds great potential, and tapping into that potential is my passion and my mission. Shock Your Potential is a global leadership training company dedicated to creating positive, productive, and profitable workplaces. We develop, nurture, train, and guide leaders at all levels and at all points in their career. Through this podcast, I get to interview amazing leaders who are shocking their own potential and the potential of those around them. Learn more about us today at shockyourpotential.com and shockyourpotentialpodcast.com. And don't forget to check out my two best-selling books, Tell Me More, How to Ask the Right Questions and Get the Most Out of Your Employees, and Sales Mixology, Why the Most Potent Sales and Customer Experiences Follow a Recipe for Success. Join us now as we meet another great guest. And don't forget, subscribe, rate, and like us today. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Shock Your Potential. Now, every once in a while, I have a guest who has a story that is different, that is going to be more reflective and maybe a little difficult to hear for many of you. And again, this is an, an episode that if you have small children running around, perhaps you might want to listen to this at another time. Um, not necessarily because there's going to be any profanity, but we're going to cover some issues that are very adult and very, um, very, hmm, they're tough. They're tough without a doubt. And uh, I know that we're going to uh, tackle them with a great deal of love and sensitivity, but we're going to talk about some really real stuff. So my guest today is Dawn Trout, and she and I have known each other for about 15 years now. We worked together long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, but Mm -hmm. we have been able to stay touch. It's one of the joys of things like Facebook, for instance. You can still be in touch with people that you worked with long, long ago and still adore. And Dawn has, um, I've known this for quite a while, uh, just from her Facebook posts, but, you know, recently she has been reaching out to me, just kind of talking about whether or not there was a place to tackle this subject here and now. And I think it is. I think there's a a great importance to this because not only is this something that we cannot uh, deny is happening, especially in America, but probably in other places in the world, but it's something that we actually can make a difference with if we are more aware and we pay attention. And that is talking about the addiction specifically with opioids. And she has a very personal story with this and we are going to tackle that. And hopefully, just so we know, I've got the Kleenex ready just in case we need it. I know she does too. So first of all, Dawn, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Michael. I really appreciate it. Great to I know be that here. You- I know you have an incredible story. So, you know, what I want to do is just start out having you, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Obviously, I know quite a bit about you, but my listeners don't. So talk a little bit about who you are, but why you're so, so incredibly passionate about helping people understand the opioid. I always have a trouble, trouble. I can't even say trouble now uh, with the opioid crisis and, you know, why it truly hits home for you. Okay. Well, um, I have two sons. Uh, One is 29 and the other oldest son is 39. Regretfully, he succumbed to uh, fentanyl poisoning, opioid abuse 
last year uh, in July. Um, so this is home to me in more than many ways. Um, as I mentioned to him many times through his recovery, and he was almost a year recovered before, uh, I always told him in his meetings and I gave him advice and I said, you know, if you can touch one person, whether it's a hug, something you've said, uh, you know, you can relate to them in a story and, uh, you know, any obstacles that you've overcome, any obstacles that you're dealing with, you know, anything from your present, past, whatever, if you can help one person, it's worth it. And that's how I feel. I feel like the awareness needs to be out there. And if it helps, whether it's a mother, a father, a sister, a brother, even someone who is struggling with addiction or is in recovery, wherever the case may be, if it helps, and even if they want more information or if they want to talk or I'm out, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. You know, I feel like I, I need and I want to be his voice. Wow. And it is so true that if you can touch one person, then you have made a positive impact without a doubt. But as you and I both know, addiction is, is boy, it wears a lot of hats. You know, addiction is, uh, it's tricky. Um, it is not, a, it's not either a you're addicted or you're in recovery. It is, it is an entire life impact, not only on the person who is um, addicted, but the people who love them. And going recovery is such a journey that it's not just recovery and now you're over and you're never back there. It, you know, addiction is, is so insidious that it pulls people back in and pulls them back and forth. So watching that as a mother prior to losing him must have been just an emotional, not only a roller coaster, but a seesaw and feel like you're being cut in half on the magician's table. You know, how, how was a mother did you deal with, you know, seeing that? Um, at times, not well. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing I wish I would have done earlier on was educate myself because I didn't know a lot about addiction. I didn't know a lot about the signs to look for, the whole opioid crisis. If I had educated myself more, I'm not saying that it would have changed the outcome. I don't know, but at least I would have been more aware and I would have had more information and education to deal with. Um, I dealt with it in the very beginning based on emotion and my emotion was not always in a good place. Um, I was either angry or I was sad and I learned I mean, his addiction was off and on for eight to nine years. And he had been in rehabs like four or five times and he would stay clean. And then, you know, back, back forth. He always told me, you know, mom, it's a war out there. This is an everyday struggle. This is an everyday fight. And I totally agreed with him. Um, it's, it's definitely something that I wouldn't wish on anyone. And, um, you know, you, you, you have many sleepless nights, you worry, you, you curse, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you, you're angry, you're sad, you're, you have so many emotions of wondering what else you could have done. What did you 
do wrong? What didn't you do? You know, you're questioning yourself constantly about your parenting. What did you miss? You know, and I came to realize through time and actually listening to him through him getting treatment and counseling and, you know, also educating myself as well, going to meetings and reading up on material and books that, well, one, I didn't cause it. I can't cure it and I can't control it. Those are the big three C's. So I had Mm -hmm. to really, really, really just, I I literally wrote them and I put a yellow sticky note up on my wall. So every morning when I woke up, that would be there for me to try to ground me. Did it always? Not always. But I kept that in my mind, like, this is what you have to realize. And I had to also realize no matter how much I begged, how much I cried, no matter how much I yelled, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. They have to want to do it. They have to really want to do it. They can't do it for you. They can't do it for their girlfriend, their child. They have to do it for themselves. So you, know, you, you make such a great point. I'm so glad you said this, and I hope you understand how important what you just what you said when you first started talking. You said, you know, I. I didn't know enough about it. I wanted to educate myself about it. So I did, but I don't know whether or not that made a difference in the outcome. I mean, that's a really powerful thing to say because that's part of forgiveness. And I, I can, I, I can't, I can imagine, but not in your shoes, um, all those emotions that you felt and still feel that are about all the elements of what could I, or what should I, or what, you know, did I, or didn't I, but at the end of the day, I, those three C's are very powerful. If you, I didn't cause it, I can't cure it, and I can't control it. That's that is. Um, you might you probably don't feel that way all the time every day, but that is a mantra that could give you some some kind of peace and help you to con- continue to fight the fight in a different way. Now, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I realized and learned a lot by going to his meetings. Uh, that also opened my eyes because, you know, there's a big stigma out there with addiction. And it's not just people that come from low income families, they come from all walks of life. Mm-hmm. And I met so many people, men, women, young, old, many different nationalities, many different religions. It doesn't matter. Addiction has no barriers. So it's going to hit you. And, it, and it's a disease. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. And the stories I heard and the emotions that I felt towards these people, I mean, I still keep in touch with many of his friends and that are in recovery because they're like my extended family. They're like my sons to me. So I want to make sure that they know I still love them and I still care and I'm, I'm still there for them. And there were a couple meetings I went to that I actually spoke. They let, they would let me speak. And um, it was it was emotional, but it was also therapeutic for me. Um, I would say um, the, one of the most heartwarming things I do remember at one of the meetings was he spoke. I mean, he spoke. <laughs> he spoke. His motto was, let's get deep. So all of his buddies knew that when they went to a meeting that my son would chair they're like, uh-oh, we got to get deep tonight. Raise, <laughs> raise Sharon. <laughs> so he would always, you know, he'd read whatever verses he had to read. And then he'd say, all right, guys, let's get deep. 
And when he was able, you know, to say his uh, story and whatever he felt of his life he wanted to touch on, a lot of times because I was there, he would, you know, of course, include me in on whatever he was talking about. And through every trial and tribulation and nights of not sleeping and worrying and crying and yelling, whatever, for him to look at me with gratitude and tears in his eyes and say to me, mom, you're my best friend. You're my mm -hmm. rock. You never gave up on me. Mm -hmm. I will never forget that. So that to me is a gift. Oh, it's, it is amazing. Well, and I think to the point that, you know, that you're making, and this goes right into my next question, is that I think most of us don't know enough about it. We know certain things. We know what the media hits on highlights. You know, I'm, I'm always afraid when anybody says, oh, I just got my wisdom teeth out and I got oxycodone or whatever it is. And I'm like, well, don't take it. Right. <laughs> don't take it. But there's got to be more than those, you know, highlight reels about this addiction and, the, and this challenge. So, you know, what are a few things that we should all know that maybe we don't know or we might not think to ask? Um, there's a lot of different reasons that addiction starts. Um, in all honesty, most of the people, including my son, it is usually related to some type of mental health issue that they don't get addressed. Uh, it also comes from trauma. Um, my son's father took his life back in 2010. So a year mm -hmm. after that, boom, that's when his addiction started. Um, PTSD is another huge one. Uh, so if that, I always say, and I've always read as well, if you can't get to the root of the problem, if you can't dig deep to get to that mental health issue, not saying that they'll ever be cured because addiction is never curable. It's a fight every day. But at mm -hmm. least if you get to the root and identify that, maybe the chances of their, their coping mechanisms might be a little bit better for them to be able to recover. Now, will they be cured? No, but they may be able to, it might be able to help them recover longer and hopefully with their coping mechanisms, you know, they'll be able to, you know, lead a better life. Um, as for... Aside from the mental health, I mean, my son started on perks and after a while with most of the addiction. Now, you know, some people say the first time is a choice. I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I'm, I'm not, I don't have PhD after my name, so I, I can't really <laughs> say it is or not. Um, after the first time, it is not a choice. I mean, that disease is horrific. The person that you saw before the disease took a hold of them. And I mean, it takes a hold of not just their, their body, but their soul. You don't even know the person anymore. So they, they're a completely different person. Um, right now, the statistics are over 200 a day. People are passing away from op opioid addiction. Everything is being laced with fentanyl. It takes literally a few granules of fentanyl to kill one person one person yeah wow i actually saw a mixing a measuring cup for and it was a measuring cup for one cup and it was halfway full of fentanyl and a hundred thousand people could die 
from that much fentanyl. Wow. Yeah. Holy That's how potent buckets. it is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It was originally for, it was originally supposed to be, well, it's FDA approved, but it was originally supposed to be used for people that had surgery afterwards for pain, but to mm-hmm. be moderate. Mm-hmm. And it is just blown out in proportion. I mean, anybody on the streets are getting it and they're lacing it with everything, including they're lacing it with weed, with marijuana. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not only the heroin or the cocaine or the crack. Anything out there can be laced with uh, heroin, with um, fentanyl. There are what they call fentanyl strips, but to be honest with you, I don't. They're really not a hundred percent foolproof. What they're I don't saying, know what that is. What is a fentanyl? So strip? Fent- fentanyl strips are supposed to be something that they can put over the drug that they have mm-hmm. to see if it can detect if there's oh. any fentanyl in that huh. but but as with anything else the fentanyl strips can be faulty mm. also the fentanyl strips can also be faulty plus be laced w- with residue on them oh geez so, so ere i say that they are effective they're not I have asked many rehab uh, individuals that work at rehabs. I've, I asked a program director at one of the rehabs. I said, if I, you know, gave you little clumps of cocaine, heroin, crack, and just said to you, could you tell me which one had fentanyl? He said, no, there's no detection. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that'll ever change. I would hope it would, but there's not enough... Um, support there's too much stigma out there and there's so many changes that need to be made in this epidemic that that's that's just one area um for let's just say for someone that finally says i'm ready for help i want the help well first of all they're a flight risk Mm -hmm. because they can say they want help today or they can say they want help this second but in two minutes, they may run out the door. So they're a flight mm-hmm. risk. So you have to find, you have to help them find a bed somewhere, which in the ep- epidemic, the beds are worth their weight in gold. Mm. So, and also you're dealing with someone who's, their brain is fried. So I and my youngest son would make the calls for him only because we knew he wasn't capable of doing it. Mm-hmm. He was usually withdrawing and he just wasn't himself. So there were times we would 10 hours straight, constantly call, call back, call back, call back. I mean, for some people, it takes weeks. It, t- it can take a month. I learned through time to educate myself because when you call and you say, well, my son has mental health issues and he also has addiction, which he wants help for both. Well, this also may depend on the rehab and it also may depend on the insurance they have, but Mm -hmm. that is considered dual diagnosis. So as soon as you say that and it's dual diagnosis, the whole story changes. Then Mm -hmm. you have to get it reapproved by the insurance company. It's coded differently. And then they only have so many beds available for that type of treatment. Yep, that is true. I do, you know, I mean, when you think about, um, all the ways that 
you know, there's so many things that, that we can, that we should fix. You know, it's so hard to fix any of them. I mean, sure. it shouldn't be terribly hard, but, sure. you know, adding all those other steps, you know, to jump through all those other hoops to jump through to your point about him being a flight risk, by the time you finally may make that happen, they may say, screw it, I'm done. I, 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 I'm past that. I want to, I need another hit. Um, and so you're back to square one. That's got to be very, very frustrating as someone who loves someone going through this. Very frustrating. And also the first time he went in, he said to me, I have to use. And I said, mm -hmm. no, you don't. What do you mean you have to use? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to let you, I'm going to give you any money to go get high. He said, no, I have to. He said, because if I do not have a positive urine test, I will not get a bed. Oh. And I thought, wow. I thought to myself, of course, he's lying to me because that's usually what addicts do. Mm -hmm. But I gave in regretfully. But after he finally got admitted, I started, what I would do is every rehab he went in, I would become friendly with someone mm -hmm. and I could educate myself more. So this one time when he was in, I went to one of the counselors that I became friendly with. And I said, so this is what my son told me. Is this true? And he said, absolutely. He said, mm -hmm. due to the opioid epidemic, if they do not have it in their system, we cannot assure them a bed. And the uh -huh. thing is, Opioids, whether it's heroin, uh, some of the pills, crack, cocaine, they only take 72 hours to get out of their system. Wow. Holy moly. I mean, how you, you understand it because there's only so many beds and you've got so many other people vying for space to be safe off the streets in one way or the other. But right. wow, what a, it reminds me, I'll just take a, a weird shortcut. It reminds mm -hmm. me of when I worked in pharmaceutical sales many years ago. And I worked with psychotropic meds that we worked with in hospitals, prisons, and jails and men's state mental institutions. So I've been around, you know, mental health uh, issues for a long, long time. Um, and with one of the jails we called on, the jail, when someone was brought in, you know, 70% of them had a, an underlying mental condition. I don't know. I was probably, it might be a little bit high, but it was, it was a significantly high number. And so you get these people in and you get them stabilized on their meds. So a mood mm -hmm. stabilizer, an antidepressant, an antipsychotic, whatever. And so when they're stabilized and now they're clear and they're being, they're able to be released from jail, they couldn't send them out the door with their meds. And it took 72 hours for their meds to be able to be transferred to this, the local uh, mental health clinic. So 72 hours, boom, you're cleared out. And now you've cycled again, which means you've committed a crime, you've done something else, and now you're back in jail. And I remember we tried to work on it for so long because I'm like, this is insane. Why can't we find a way to bridge this gap? And so it's the same as, you know, whatever, this is such a similar situation. Like you can't get a bed unless you actually are high. But when you made the decision not to be high anymore, the decision to get high only exasperates what you're trying to do and might reduce the likelihood that you actually seek help. Exactly. I mean, yeah. there was no way I felt comfortable at all giving him that money to go actually say, okay, go get high so you can get a bed. That's the last mm -hmm. thing on earth I wanted to do because that was defeating the purpose 
of mm-hmm. me wanting him to go into recovery. But mm-hmm. after I learned from many different people in different rehabs, he was telling me the truth. Now, that's few and far between at times in his addiction (laughs) that he did tell me the truth. But with that, he did. And And you're like, damn it, now you tell me the truth? (laughs) I I know. But I was was actually surprised, but also glad that he did tell me the truth. Yes. If that makes sense, even though I didn't want him to get high. So it's it's a double-edged sword all the way around, no matter which way you look at it. So Don, this is obviously, you know, this has impacted your entire life and will impact the entire rest of your life. There's no way that this cannot. So, you know, talk a little bit about that. Tell, you know, for somebody who's listening, I guarantee you there's somebody who's listening who has someone in their life that they know, even if they don't know it for sure, but they have a suspicion. There's somebody they know or have heard of that have that are affected like this, whether it's a person in addiction or the person in their life dealing with the addiction, you know, how, how has it affected you? How, do, how does it continue to affect you now? I mean, it's been more than a year since he's passed. Uh, at first, um, let's say I stayed in my shell because, you know, well, not, it's not easy losing anyone, but mm-hmm. to lose a child, that's not the that's not the, the way evolution is supposed to go. I'm supposed to go first. So for him to go before me, I mean, that, that just isn't the way it's supposed to be. And it knocked me for a loop. And I guess rightfully so for any parent. Um, I would read a lot. And then I eventually started getting into different support groups. Uh, that helped a little bit. Now, sometimes it overwhelmed me because some of the stories I read brought back too many painful memories. Mm-hmm. And also it was even harder to read. Other times I could be very sympathetic. I will say one thing, it has taught me that the small things that I used to get really upset about, they're just a drop in a bucket. They don't mean anything. They really don't mean anything. Like there'll be something you know, I can't even remember something, you know, minuscule that my youngest might do. And he's afraid that I'm going to get upset. And I'll look at him and I'll say, it's only a floor or it's only a pan, you know, yeah. it, it's okay. Like, it's not worth it. And I look at him and I always say, we've been through worse. And he looks at me and he's like, you're right. So mm-hmm. in that aspect, I guess that's a healthy way of looking at it. Um, it's ironic without even knowing it, that as you walk through your way through life, how this epidemic is so widespread and you have no clue when you're going to, literally, I started coming outside my steps and I would sit on my steps. Then I would start taking walks and we live in a townhouse community. So I would take a walk in between two sets of townhouses. And that was all I could handle at first for the, say the first month or so. Mm-hmm. And we had very friendly neighbors and one of my neighbors, um, you know, she happened to just ask me how I was doing and everything. And she was gardening, you know, and her back was to me at the time. And she's like, and I started taking like baby steps up her walk. Literally, I did want to turn around and run all the way back in the house because I wasn't sure what I was ready for yet. But I thought, all right. And it was almost like my son was kind of like nudging me. Like, it's okay, mom. 
go ahead. Mm-hmm. So she was asking me how I was adjusting and how, cause we had literally just moved into our new townhouse four or five days prior. Oh, so boy. yeah. So I stood there and I didn't know what to say to her. So I did tell her, you know, I liked it and I liked the area. And then I just took a deep breath and I just pretty much told her what happened and Mm. not every detail, but I told her as much as I was able to get out. Well, (laughs) within minutes after I finished my story and I was crying, she turned around, she had tears in her eyes. She said, honey, I lost my son the same way five years ago. Oh my. What are the odds? Like, how would I know that? Wow. It was almost as if my son in his own way, and maybe her son mm-hmm. was, and maybe the man upstairs, I don't know, you know, angels, yep. all the above were trying to put us together so that, you know, we could be support for each other. And th- I mean, I have met many other people, you know, I've, I, along the way, and it doesn't, it doesn't phase me at all to be supportive for them. And if they just want to cry, I listen. If they want to yell, sometimes I'll put the phone down <laughs> and then I'll go <laughs> back out in when they're done yelling and, you know, or, and if they just want me to be silent, I'll be silent. Um, I think the hardest thing that I've realized going through, you know, lose, I mean, well, I don't, I, I still haven't, and I don't know if I ever will. I don't, I don't talk about him in past tense because to me, I, yeah, I he's my son. Yeah. Yeah. He's my son. And someone said to me once, well, you loved him. No, I, I, I love him. him. I will always love him. You know, I, I gave birth to him. So he's my child and, oh, not a child anymore, but you know, a young man, he was, when he was, he was 38 when he passed. But to that point, I mean, no, I, I'm not going to talk in past tense. Um, someone said to me one time, well, this is your new normal. Well, yeah, that went up my spine really bad. <laughs> because, and, it, and it was in a meeting. And if I had a clear shot to the door, I would have ran. But I, I didn't because I would have had to say, excuse me, like 10 times for people to move. So I was polite. I sat there, but I never went back because mm-hmm. I thought to myself, what's normal about losing a child? Right. Yes, it's, yes, it's new. Yes, it's different. But I do think, I do feel wholeheartedly, 1000% that there, there's different verbiage that could have been used rather than new normal, because yeah. it's not normal in any way to lose your child. Right, and exactly. I, I mean, I thank goodness for all the years I did have them. I, I thank goodness, especially for the 11 months. He was two, two weeks shy of his one year recovery. And, uh, I think, I thank goodness every day for those 11 months because mm-hmm. I saw the young man that I hadn't seen for years. He was humble. That's a beautiful. Yeah. That's a he beautiful. He was humble. He was kind. It. And I, I, I love that. You know, I, I will cherish those memories forever. That, and that's such a healing way to, to look at that. And I, I think that that can continue to give you peace as you love and remember him and, you know, still feel him. Um, 
you know, I think the question then on my mind is probably everybody else's, well, what, what can we do? I mean, what can we do about this? What can, you know, somebody like I, who doesn't have this affecting their life right now, besides putting you on the podcast and sharing it, you know, what can any of us do? Those who are listening, what can we do to help win this war? Well, first and foremost, to be honest with you, the best thing to do is to take the word stigma. Just remove the stigma. Stop being, uh, in a sense, ignorant about it because you mm -hmm. don't know, okay? And I'm not saying they're being ignorant on purpose. They're not. They just don't know. You don't know what you don't know. So take the stigma away because for one thing I know for sure, the old saying when people say, not my child, it can <laughs> happen. Sadly, mm -hmm. it can. And that's the first thing I would say. I would say educate yourself. And whether it's going to support group meetings, whether it's reading things online, because there's so many sites that you can, you know, get educated on reading books. Uh, there's also movies. I mean, many movies that deal with addiction. Um, also, I'm very cognizant on listening to, and I really don't mean to be political in any way, but I'm also listening to what certain people that are in the government, whether it's, you know, Senator or whoever, how they, what, how their stance is on mm -hmm. the opioid epidemic. Do they mm -hmm. have any possible steps to take? So that's another area I look at. Mm -hmm. um, I also look at participating, participating in events, becoming involved in the community. They always have walks, not right now during the COVID, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I miss two because of COVID. But um, yeah, there's walks, there's all kinds of events. Um, participate in them, get yourself educated. If you have the slightest idea, slightest suspicion that someone you love is using or that they're lying to you. And believe me, you'll become the best detective in the world because I sure did. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I ransacked everything and I looked up everything on the internet. Now, granted, still wasn't enough, but I did. And it still wasn't enough education, but educate yourself till you, you possibly can. I would say offer to even, you know, be on certain boards of different associations, you know, um, that ha that try to make changes in the epidemic. Because to be honest with you, I mean, in the support groups that I'm in and some of the uh, Zoom and uh, other meetings that I'm on, there's no one easy answer. There is really no one easy answer. And I wish there was. Uh, one of my great friends, uh, um, I haven't met him. I feel like I have Ryan Hampton. He wrote a book and it's all about uh, the opioid epidemic. And he was actually, you know, he was actually in uh, Congress. And of course he isn't, he, that, that didn't happen. You know, that went down the, but he broke walls down to learn how everything got started, where it got started, how, you know, all areas. And he wrote a book and I haven't finished it yet because it's one of those kind of books that is, I can only read like one or two chapters. It's mm -hmm. kind of draining, but yeah. uh, I, I keep in touch with him a lot and he fills me in on, you know, different things. And I get in on Zoom meetings with him, um, but there's just so much that needs to be done. There's so much. These rehabs sometimes, and there's some good rehabs. 
but some of the rehabs aren't great. They really mm. aren't. I mean, people can get drugs in them. Oh, um, boy. Yeah. So the there's recovery a, cent- there's the even recovery more challenges cent- than, than just uh, oh, absolutely. You know, that in and of itself within the system. Absolutely. I remember yeah. my son being in one rehab and he said somebody overdosed on Xanax. And mm. I thought, well, how did they get well, that in? He said, he said, well, some people were throwing it over the fence or, you know, I guess if you pay somebody and they're, they're not on the up and up that works there, they'll, they'll bring it in. Oh boy. Sadly, the next step, if they decide to go, is in a recovery center, which that's regulated curfew-wise. And also they have to go to meetings. They have to get a job. They have to participate, you know, do the 12 steps. But I did not know this until actually after he passed. Recovery centers have, have no regulations. You right now could go outside and put a sign on your door saying Michael Sherlock's Recovery Center. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we've got a lot of things to fix <clears throat> in order to help win this war. Oh, absolutely. So, so Don, um, as we get near the end, you know, if somebody's listening and they know they have an addiction themselves or they have someone they love that they know is suffering, where where can they go? Where should they go? What's what's the first step? Well, there is a great um, there's a great organization called SAMHSA, and it's S A M H S A, and the number for that is one eight hundred six six two help H E L P, and they will give you advice and resources for substance abuse as well as mental health services. And if they can't help you in your state, they will give you resources and numbers and people to call in other states as well. Um, They're actually really good. Um, They've gotten better through time and they're well well educated so they can help a lot. Um, I will tell you if you're trying to get them into a rehab, um, do your homework, look up the reviews, check out the rehab. That's one good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, granted, am I going to sit here and say that every review is going to be glowing? No, you're always going <laughs> to be a few. You can never satisfy everybody. But if more than not are positive, then you know it's a, good, a decent place for them to go. Um, sadly, you know, I mean, if they're over 18 and no, actually if they're over 21, well, 18 even after that, if they decide to go to a recovery or a, um, yeah, or a recovery house or whatever, you know, kind of extra recovery they want to go to after that, that's all their decision. That's their decision. And they have to follow that. They they have to do what's needed to be done. My son actually, I, I, I believe he did. I really do. And uh, they, put, they push him. They really do. Uh, the only thing is, um, you know, like I said, they're not regulated. So it's tough at the very beginning for them to get any kind of jobs and have to also pay rent. So that, yeah. can, that can do a lot for their mental, mental health. I would suggest for everyone to really just educate themselves, go online, read books, go to meetings, uh, get on some of these uh, Zoom meetings, uh, 
internet, uh, however you can possibly find a meeting, because there's not a whole lot of meetings that are in, that are meeting in person yet, unless it's in someone's mm -hmm. backyard and they're all spread out. Mm -hmm. um, it's usually virtual. Um, but yeah, I would honestly educate yourself to the, to, to the end that you possibly can. For anyone going through addiction, and you're thinking, well, should I get help? Should I not? Um, I will say one thing to you. That next high that you get, that one last time that you think you're going to do it, that might be your last time in life. So it's not always just the, the high that you're really looking for. It could be the end of your life as well. And, you know, what you're putting yourself through and your whole body and your loved ones, it, it, it's, it's just not worth it. Dawn, it's a compelling story that I know will sit with people and, um, and make a lot of people think. I thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing your um, story with such openness and honesty. I know that you are committed to uh, try and find ways to continue to help other families and individuals so they don't suffer what you've suffered from. Um, so I really commend you. Thank you so much for sharing that with us today. You're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Shock Your Potential. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and like our podcast. And for more information, find us at shockyourpotential.com and shockyourpotentialpodcast.com.